This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 12, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, David Grimm talks to Sarah Crespi about the week's most interesting online news stories, and then Sarah Iverson will discuss how telemetry has transformed the study of animal behavior in aquatic ecosystems. And then we'll hear from Monita Chatterjee about the impact of cochlear implants on emotion recognition. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on what happens when the slate is wiped clean. Starting in the 1940s, certain Pacific islands became the testing ground for the most destructive weapons ever made, nuclear bombs. Now, half a century later, scientists are looking back at the destruction to see what we can learn. In this case, we're talking about the atoll Fangatofa. What happened there, Dave? So this was a site in the late 1960s and early 1970s uh, where France detonated a number of nuclear bombs, the largest of which was actually a hundred times more powerful than the bomb dropped on Nagasaki. And as you can imagine, this wiped out a lot of life in the region. And so for this new study, scientists were wondering, as you mentioned, Sarah, you know, if we wipe the slate clean, will animals repopulate an environment the same way they had previously? And how long have they been keeping an eye on this atoll? Since the bombings? Yeah, they have. Actually, the researchers have been looking at this atoll for 25 years. They took measurements between 1972 and 1997. And what did they see? I mean, was everything just wiped out and and it's been real slow to recover? I obviously saw a lot of stuff wiped out. And what they really focused on, the animal they really wanted to focus on was mollusks, because these tend to be fairly stationary animals that live a long time. So it makes it easier to study for a long-term study like this. And here they sort of noticed some intriguing things. They noticed that when the mollusks repopulated the reefs that they had been on before, they repopulated in different ways. There were different numbers of species, often a much richer concentration of species than had been there before. And also the composition of the species was different. There tended to be a lot more carnivorous mollusks living on the reefs or in certain reefs and a lot less herbivorous mollusks. 
Do they think that the radioactivity that remained in the area caused these changes in the kinds of mollusks that live there now, the difference in the community structure? You know, there's been this open debate that if, you know, if you restart these colonization processes from scratch, are you going to see the same thing you saw before? Are you going to see the same type of species before? And that sort of suggests that particular environments are very well suited for particular species, and so you're going to have those particular species come back again. Or is this just sort of kind of dumb luck? And this research seems to suggest that it's a lot of dumb luck, that there's just a lot of chance, a lot of randomness in this, that when you have this recolonization, it's not necessarily that these environments attract specific species. It's just that randomly certain species are going to end up in these environments, which is why we're seeing a different composition now of these mollusks than we saw in the past. Next up, we have a story on alcohol-imbibing chimps. Last year, we reported on an enzyme that makes it easier for primates to metabolize alcohol. That enzyme came into being about 10 million years ago, which means this alcohol-friendly enzyme is present in us humans, chimps, and gorillas. But do our close relatives actually take advantage of this enzyme? Do they drink? Let's start with the best-named hypothesis I think I've ever heard of. This is the... (laughs) Drunk monkey hypothesis, Dave. What is it? Well, it's actually the drunken monkey hypothesis, which is actually (laughs) even more amusing. But this is basically what you were talking about, Sarah, that millions of years ago, there was a lot of rotten fruit falling on the ground, and only those primates that were able to metabolize the alcohols in that fruit because it had started to ferment, they had an evolutionary advantage because they didn't get super drunk, they didn't pass out, (laughs) they weren't being attacked by predators because they were super drunk. And so this idea is this is something that's stayed with us over time and lets us imbibe alcohol. Of course, we still get drunk, but it's not like we get incapacitated super quickly, or at least most of us don't. One of the big remaining questions is, do other primates besides us actually go out and seek out alcohol? You know, because we can tolerate it, do some of our primate relatives actually go out and want to get drunk or at least seek out alcohol like we often do? Until now, there really hasn't been much evidence of anybody, of any of our chimp or gorilla relatives going out and having a drink or two until they started installing secret cameras all over the forest, right, Dave? That's right. It comes from a 17-year study of chimps in West Africa, and uh, researchers observed 26 wild chimps living in Guinea between 1995 and 2012. And what's interesting about this region is the villagers here routinely tap into what's called the raffia palm tree and collect its sap, which ferments in these plastic buckets, and then the villagers drink it to get drunk, and they called it palm wine. And the alcohol content is about 6.9%, which is a bit more alcohol than we find in beer. What the researchers found, which was really interesting, is when the villagers were away, chimpanzees in the region actually approached these plastic buckets, they fashioned drinking cups from folded leaves, and they began to drink the palm wine. Then what happens next? Is there an actual effect on the chimps after they have some of this wine? Well, the researchers had a hard time observing behaviors that they would classically qualify as these chimps being drunk, although there was a male chimp that seemed kind of restless and spent an hour moving from tree to tree. Other chimps fell asleep after they had drunk a fair amount of the palm wine. So there's some similarities to what we see in ourselves when we have alcohol, but the researchers are not going as far to suggest that these primates were actually inebriated. Can we know for sure that the chimps were drinking the palm wine for the alcohol content versus some other reason, like nutrition? That's right. And we really can't because the sap that's used to make this wine actually contains sugars like sucrose and glucose and minerals that chimps might need for their diet. So it's not 
entirely clear that they're drinking this wine to get drunk. Maybe it's just an important part of their diet. Lastly, we have a story on all your viral infections. Our immune systems create antibodies when we get infections. Antibodies circulate in our system on the lookout for repeat offenders. But they can also be used as a diagnostic tool, right, Dave? Well, that's right, Sarah. When your body is infected with a virus or a bacterium or something else, your immune system generates antibodies. And these antibodies are sort of a, a bit of a history record because by looking at the antibodies in your blood, researchers can get a sense of what type of infections your immune system has battled in the past. And in this new study, they took this basic principle to a new level by kind of saying, well, why not just look at everything all at once? How did they do that? Well, what they did was they wanted to create a test where you could basically just take a drop of blood and get a sense of every single virus a person's been infected with. Obviously, that's easier said than done. And what the team had to do is first they had to assemble this massive library of almost 100,000 synthetic protein fragments, each of which represent a section of a virus that antibody might recognize. And then the idea is when these proteins are added to a drop of blood, the antibodies in our blood attach to these matching fragments, and then researchers can take these antibodies and figure out, okay, what viruses has this person been exposed to throughout their life? When they gave this test to a bunch of people, how many people did they give it to, and what did they find out? Well, they called their test a virus scan, and they gave it to 500 people from U.S., Thailand, South Africa, and Peru. Some of them had been infected with HIV, others with a variety of other viruses. And on average, the researchers found that most people had antibodies for about 10 previous viral infections, although those people who had HIV and who lived outside the U.S. averaged more than 10. It really seems like 10 is a very low number to me as a person who is not an immunologist, but who feels like there are just more viruses than that that I've heard of. Is it possible that they miss some in this, in this type of test? Yeah, it seemed low to me, too. I mean, the, the researchers uncovered some things that weren't terribly surprising. I mean, they found in common viruses like herpes virus and rhinoviruses, which cause a common cold. But you would just expect over the course of a person's life that they would be exposed to 10, more than 10, more than 10 viruses. It could be that some of the cold viruses were exposed to are just so similar that they're not coming up as different viruses on the test. It's also possible some of the experts consulted for the story suggest that the test isn't uh, quite as comprehensive as the researchers claim that it may be missing a number of viruses. For example, the virus scan didn't identify as many people as would be expected with antibodies for viruses like norvoviruses and rotaviruses, which cause a large number of intestinal infections. So it's possible that this number 10 is an underestimate. This seems like it would be useful in the clinic nonetheless. Is that one of the proposed uses? That's right. So imagine you go to the doctor every year and the doctor doesn't just sort of listen to your heart and your lungs, but actually takes a drop of blood and checks you for what kind of viruses you're being exposed to. And it's possible they could potentially pick up viruses that haven't caused symptoms yet, you know, potentially viruses for diseases like hepatitis C, and then could enact some preventative measures before you really get struck with the sickness. And these tests could also be used to help develop vaccines, potentially, and even help scientists draw links between viral infections and diseases like diabetes or even chronic fatigue syndrome. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how nomadic tribes of Caucasians may have had a significant impact on the culture of early Europe and Asia. Also a story about how spider and centipede venom may have evolved from an insulin-like hormone. 
For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why journals are investigating a climate skeptic who's published a number of articles but turns out to have some ties to the fossil fuel industry. Also a story about how $28 billion a year is spent on biomedical research that is not reproducible. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencebag.org. Next, I have fond memories from more than 15 years ago of putting transmitters in cutthroat trout and then spending all summer on a boat chasing them around a lake with a hydrophone. Both terrestrial and aquatic telemetry have come a long way since then, and you'll find comprehensive reviews of both in this week's issue. Sarah Iverson discusses how telemetry has transformed the study of animal behavior in aquatic ecosystems in recent years. I'm Suzanne Bard. Most of us know that the oceans are absolutely critical. We depend on them for our oxygen. They control our weather. They represent huge resources in terms of food and other things. We use them for shipping and transport. But we know they're changing and have fundamentally changed. And so it is critical that we understand and better manage the oceans. I think telemetry has really profoundly changed our understanding of animals that live in the waters and oceans and how they use and move through entire oceans, rivers, and lakes. And indeed, I think it's actually urged us to now use the word ocean as a singular term because many animals really do use one ocean ignoring national boundaries and names of continents. And we're just finding out that animals go places and use so much more space than we knew before. It is providing really critical insights into both where animals are distributed now and how that's changing with changing climate. It's giving us information to provide for fisheries management. It's even helped us to give advice on planning sustainable coastal and offshore development, design of marine protected areas, and overall, I think, far better means by which to have a scientific basis for good ecosystem management. Interesting. And let's talk about how telemetry works. There are a variety of aquatic telemetry methods, such as acoustics, satellite, radio, archival data storage, accelerometry, and no one single technology is suitable for addressing all scientific questions, but acoustic and satellite telemetry, which is what we focus primarily on in our review, can be used in both fresh and salt water. And the way it works is that animals are fitted with acoustic tags that are then detected and logged by receivers that are either moored on the ocean floor or at some kind of fixed station or even attached to mobile platforms or other large animals. And then the data is downloaded periodically using ships or gliders. And then the data on behavior and locations of animals fitted with satellite tags can be continuously retrieved in real time or all at once from pop-up tags via orbiting satellites. And it wasn't long ago that telemetry had to be used on large animals. What role has miniaturization of tags played in recent years in transforming the kinds of questions that can be answered and how long animals can be tracked? Even in just the past year, they have gotten even more miniaturized and it's played a huge role. 
some of the smallest acoustic tags now weigh less than half of a gram. So this allows us to tag tiny neonate fish as they begin life, as well as small invertebrates. And just as importantly, miniaturization and advancement of battery life has been critical because that's really usually what dictates the size of the tag. But this has gotten so much better. Some of these tags can transmit for over 10 years. Wow. Okay. So that probably transforms some studies from being a short-term study to a long-term study, I would imagine. Absolutely. And there are some very cool websites that have real-time tracking of things like great white sharks over several years at a time. So the ability to really understand large, long-lived animals. Yeah, I can't imagine you'd want to replace a tag on a great white shark too often. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And how does telemetry help scientists study social interactions and also predator-prey dynamics? I mean, you're not just tracking one animal all the time, are you? If you have several satellite-tagged animals that are aggregating in the same area, you can infer some things. But one of the very cool developments is that of a mobile transceiver. It's an acoustic tag that acts as both a receiver and a transmitter. So it can be attached to larger animals. We've had some very successful studies with gray seals. So that that seal is traveling around the open ocean. And if it passes an acoustic receiver, it's recorded on that. But if that seal comes across any other tagged animal, it's recorded on that seal's tag. And so it's allowed us for the first time to see hot spots of foraging activity, which is evidenced by numbers of these seals aggregating together on offshore banks and their tags transmitting to each other, as well as detecting giant bluefin tuna who are clearly foraging in the same area and it's showing competing predators that share similar ecological niches and resources and diets. But it also allows us to see when a tagged prey is actually consumed by the seal. And so we can really provide direct evidence of predator-prey interactions and who is eating whom. And I imagine telemetry is also a useful tool in conservation and also management. Yes, this is really one of its real strengths. And one very neat example that's very recent is obviously there's a lot of interest in the Arctic And there's the emergence of a new fishery for Greenland halibut. And virtually nothing was known about this very deep water species. And so these two management lines were sort of arbitrarily almost set up for the summer fishing grounds and the winter fishing grounds, thinking that they were fishing two different stocks or populations. And through the use of telemetry, we were able to show that there is complete thorough mixing and that they have to be managed as a single stock. And this, of course, is going to be important for species that move from Europe, such as tunas that move from Europe to North America and back. Also, we have set up a system off of Western Australia where it's actually serving as a shark warning system. Great white and other types of sharks are endangered. And so if a tagged shark crosses this line, that information is immediately relayed to this shark station, and then they can inform beachgoers. It's sort of a first proof of concept, and we've been using it as a means to mitigate shark-human conflicts, but at the same time to conserve shark populations, which are so important to the ocean ecosystem. Interesting. And has the use of telemetry revealed any big surprises about certain species? 
extreme migrations, for example, or animals turning up in places you never expected? Yes, I think telemetry is constantly revealing surprises. Some of the first examples that really surprised us were salmon smolt. These are very juvenile salmon that were tagged in three different river systems in the United States and Nova Scotia. And these populations are endangered. And prior to this study, no one knew where they went when they left the river system. And within a very short time, nearly a third of those tagged were detected on their way to Newfoundland and then onto Greenland. And so these tiny little salmon smolts were making that journey from the United States all the way up to Greenland. And it also shows that the same fish individuals that are in Greenland are the same ones that were south in the U.S. And so it really makes you have to think very differently about how you manage fisheries. And I think one of the other great examples was a great white shark that was tagged off of South Africa using a pop-up satellite tag. Four months later, that pop-up tag was retrieved in South Africa. But when the data was downloaded, it turned out that that shark had gone all the way to Australia and back to South Africa within four months. Satellite telemetry has provided tremendous information on the global scale movements of leatherback turtles from their breeding grounds in the Caribbean, moving all the way up to North Atlantic waters off Nova Scotia, where they really tank up on these massive aggregations of jellyfish. The animals really do not carry passports or recognize national boundaries. Fascinating. And in birds, for example, we can measure flight energetics while tracking them. How has aquatic animal telemetry also been paired up with physiological measures? Aquatic animal telemetry is ever more so being paired with other kinds of physiological measures, such as measuring the energetics of the animal, using biochemical tracers of diet, for instance, with fatty acids or stable isotopes of tissues, using molecular approaches to look at genetic stock structure in comparison to movements and distributions of animals. And even temperature sensors have allowed us to begin to understand thermal ranges of some animals. And you mentioned animal oceanographers in your paper. Now, I don't normally think of animals as being scientists, but they can collect data for us in places we can't go. The use of animal oceanographers is, I think, really cool. And I think people have already gotten very much on board with this and are very excited by it. But basically, telemetered animals going about their daily routines, they encounter environmental variation, and they can compile data sets with a frequency and over a range of scales that we couldn't feasibly collect using conventional tools, either because of expense or danger. And we can't tell the animals where to go, but they can carry a tag such as a conductivity temperature depth sensor, which is often used to take oceanographic measurements. And so, for instance, we have deployed these on northern fur seals, large adult males who are going about the Bering Sea in the winter, collecting oceanographic data at times and places where we could not get to by ship at that time. Transmitters carried by narwhal and beluga whales have now provided more than 200,000 temperature salinity profiles of the Arctic Ocean. And in the Southern Ocean, such tags carried by marine mammals are really improving general circulation models for the ocean. Very cool. So what are the next steps for aquatic telemetry? What are the big problems that need to be tackled? Well, I think that the next steps and the biggest problems, I think, arise from actually what we've learned from it already, which is that animals do use the global ocean. And the only way we can possibly really understand and better govern the oceans and the animals that inhabit 
inhabit it is to unify the global telemeter community into a global network that will enable us to meet these upcoming needs in ocean management with the changes that are happening in the ocean. And a lot of this requires data sharing into a global network where people share data in a timely fashion, who they're tagging when is immediately available so other people know whose receivers are where. And in fact, the Ocean Tracking Network has initiated this global telemetry network and has been growing substantially. And we're finding that people that get involved in it really are excited because it puts their data into a much greater context. They are able to basically find out where their tag animal goes on receivers that they didn't deploy but that somebody else owns. And so this sharing of a global database, I think, is really the next major step for aquatic animal telemetry. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Sarah. Well, it was a pleasure, and thanks very much, Suzanne. Sarah Iverson and her colleagues write about aquatic animal telemetry in this week's science. You'll also find a fascinating review of terrestrial animal tracking in the magazine this week, so be sure to check out both articles. Next, cochlear implants have helped many people with hearing impairments understand speech and other sounds. But the technology is still evolving, and people wearing the implants still often find it difficult to perceive changes in pitch or frequency of a speaker's voice. That can make it more difficult to recognize the emotion in someone's voice, because pitch helps convey that emotion. Monita Chatterjee and her colleagues compared emotion recognition in children and adults with cochlear implants to that of their peers with normal hearing. They also looked at what happens to emotion recognition when pitch information is degraded in people with normal hearing. How do people use the pitch of their voice to convey emotional information? So this is a very good question, and I don't think we understand the whole range of emotional communication well enough as yet, but it seems that some broad things are constant across talkers, and one of them is voice pitch. So voice pitch fluctuations in my voice as I'm speaking to you might convey information about my mood, my communicative intent. So if I speak with a somewhat higher mean voice pitch, and if I speak with a lot of voice pitch modulations, I might sound happier. And if I speak with a somewhat lower pitch and more in a monotone, so with fewer fluctuations, I might sound sadder. So these are just some examples, but emotion is a pretty complex signal, acoustically speaking, and I don't think we've got a complete handle on all the dimensions, you know, that are involved. How does the ability to recognize emotion in someone's voice affect social development in children? With children who just have hearing loss and are listening through a cochlear implant, there is some evidence suggesting that children's perceived quality of life can be linked to their performance in a voice emotion recognition task. Cochlear implants have not been around for that long, so the studies of this nature are few and far between. So I can't answer this question fully, but there is one study that suggested that, you know, there weren't significant delays in social competence or empathy in very young cochlear implanted children. There's another study that suggests that facial emotion recognition is more or less normal in school-aged cochlear implants children of the age range that we are studying. But on the other hand, we just don't know the answer to big questions like how is social development ongoing in children with cochlear implants as they develop with the device in place. 
but we would think that peer-to-peer communication is important in social development, and as children get older, these things might play quite a role. In your recent study, you looked at voice emotion recognition by both children and adults with cochlear implants, but you also looked at children and adults with normal hearing who listen to similar stimuli with degraded signals. Can you tell me about the experiment and why you also looked at children and adults with normal hearing? The purpose was to look at voice emotion recognition in children with cochlear implants who were implanted fairly early and are developing with that device in place. With adults with cochlear implants, who most of them learnt language normally, right? So their brain formed these templates for things like acoustic information for emotion in a normal manner, and then they lost their hearing and uh, got a cochlear implant. So they are bringing a very different auditory system to the table than the children with cochlear implants. And then we wanted to look at children and adults with normal hearing who heard the same recordings just to, you know, see how well our stimuli would convey emotion to normally hearing children and adults. It's an important control condition. So for your experiment, you had people record emotionally neutral sentences like the chicken laid some eggs or the road goes up the hill with five different emotional inflections in a child-directed manner. Let's listen to happy voice. The chicken laid some eggs. Here's sad voice. The chicken laid some eggs. An angry voice. The chicken laid some eggs. Scared voice. The chicken laid some eggs. And neutral voice. The chicken laid some eggs. And you played these back to children and adults in a random order. And you measured how well the participants recognized each emotion. But also we wanted to look at children and adults with normal hearing who were listening to these same stimuli. We wanted to process those sentences through what's called a noise vocoder, which is one way to simulate the kind of information that a cochlear implant transmits. Okay, so what this does is basically degrade pitch information in the signal by replacing some of the fine frequency detail of speech with noise in the same frequency range. And how did different groups of people do in your emotion recognition tests? What we found was that with the original speech, the normal hearing children and adults did great. They were at above 90% correct. The cochlear implanted adults were postlingually deaf, did quite well, about the same as normal hearing adults did with noise vocoded simulations, which is what we might have expected. What was reassuring was that the children with cochlear implants did just about as well as the adults with cochlear implants, even though those children had never heard acoustically presented normal speech or had mostly not heard much and had developed with the cochlear implant only in place. And so that really shows how well they're doing. With the degraded material, as we expected, the normally hearing listeners, their performance declined as the sound got more and more degraded. The children with normal hearing did much worse than adults with normal hearing. And when we looked deeper into this, we found a significant age effect. So children with normal hearing who were younger really struggled when we simulated cochlear implanted speech in this emotion recognition task. Even though they did so well with the unprocessed original natural speech sound. And these children had, of course, never heard noise vocoded speech before. They had no experience with it. And this shows 
how important it is for the brain to be accustomed to the sound, especially for children. So the effect of experience with the device might be quite important here. And one thing we know is that children, normally hearing children or implanted children, you know, their brains are still developing. And in hearing children, the auditory system and the language systems continue to develop into their teenage years. Hearing with the cochlear implant or listening to degraded sounds takes a lot of cognitive effort, we think. And there's more and more interest in this area now as we realize that really the reason that cochlear implants work is that the brain is amazing and there's a lot of reconstruction and repair of that incoming degraded signal. And so with younger children who have possibly limited cognitive resources, this task might have been very difficult. Another thing we found was that there was a huge variation in the range of performance by these children and adults with cochlear implants. So some children did quite poorly in the task, and this really underscores how far we have yet to go with cochlear implants. Interesting. And regarding the technology, are cochlear implants something that are improving over time so more of this emotional information can be conveyed? There's been a lot of discussion about this issue, and it seems like the next big leap in cochlear implants would be ones where we are able to transmit voice pitch information to the listener with sufficient fidelity. And it seems that the present mode of information transmission, you know, with these electrodes implanted into the cochlea the way they are, is not doing it. And there's a lot of research that is going on and perhaps something different, a radically different approach to how the electrode is designed will have to materialize before we can transmit voice pitch. So you also worked on another study involving the Mandarin language and Mandarin as a tonal language. So that involves yet another layer to this when it comes to the cochlear implants. Yeah. So our grant from NIH allows us this wonderful collaboration with Dr. Yang Song Lin's lab in Chimei Medical Center in Taiwan. And the children getting cochlear implants there are growing up speaking a tone language. And what is a tone language? It's a language in which even to understand the meaning of the word, you have to hear the subtle pitch inflections within that word. So it's a very interesting, different linguistic environment that is challenging the pitch system in a sense, you know. And so one of our questions is, are children who are developing in that environment, given the pitch demands of a tone language environment, are they learning to somehow get better pitch information or lexical tone information from their device? And how are they developing in terms of tone recognition, but also pitch sensitivity? And we've just started these studies in this recently published work. We found that there was no difference between children in Taiwan and children in the U.S., culture implanted or normal hearing, in a very simple pitch discrimination task. But we are now trying more complex tasks, and we're actually starting a study where we are doing the parallel voice emotion recognition task in Mandarin with the children in Taiwan. So we shall see. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. It's been a total pleasure. Monita Chatterjee and her team investigated the influence of cochlear implants on emotion recognition. She presented their research at the 169th meeting of the Acoustical Society of America.
And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.